Forletta Investigates. Welcome to Forletta Investigates. Investigative security consultant Larry Forletta is a highly decorated former DEA agent and member of the Maryland State Police. Forletta Investigates aims to provide information on real-life encounters involving law enforcement, drug trafficking, and actual investigations. Listen to the show every Tuesday as we approach topics of crime and other issues affecting our communities with someone who has worked within law enforcement for over 25 years. Here is your host, Larry Forletta. Okay, everybody, I want to welcome you to our podcast, Forletta Investigates. I am honored and fortunate to have our next guest, Pete Charette, or Pierre Pichrette, and we'll call him Pete. Is that good with you, Pete? Oh, that's good. No problem, Larry. Okay. Pete, what I'm going to talk about is, uh, you know, that uh, most of DEA's success and their agents' success have really gone unheralded. And, and I pose this question to all the agents that are interviewed on our show. So what, what's your response to that, Pete? I totally agree with you, Larry. Uh, uh, sometimes uh, we in DEA, uh, you know, we try to keep a low profile as far as exposing ourselves because some of us, you know, work undercover uh, sure. and uh, like I, I did. And um, sometimes uh, we don't get the recognition that is deserved because uh, personally, uh, and I say this without hesitation, DEA is one of the greatest uh, law enforcement agency in the United States. And uh, we are also worldwide at various locations. We have offices, but um, uh, we have a great, uh, it was a great agency. And I got in at the beginning of uh, the growth of the agency, and uh, I'll talk more about that later. But uh, yes, uh, you know, sometimes we're the unsung heroes of uh, right. putting narcotic traffickers in prison for life. So, uh, Pete, just a little bit about your background that I'm going to mention. I know you have about 33 years of uh, investigative experience, including the military police, Broward County Sheriff's Office, and DEA. And then we're going to talk about one of your most famous cases, Pete, called The French Connection that starred Gene Hackman. Uh, you served in France and rose in, in, into the ranks of DEA. You're a highly decorated agent, receiving numerous awards from both foreign governments and law enforcement agencies throughout the United States. Uh, Pete has been featured on the History Channel, Canadian Television, and he's currently a finalist award winner in, in the Independent Author Network. His book is called One Hell of a Ride, and we're going to talk a little bit about that later. So, Pete, can you please uh, tell us about your uh, your interesting career? Well, uh, to say the least, uh, yes, it was interesting, and it was one hell of a ride. Uh, uh, basically, uh, you know, when I was a young man, uh, a boy in Canada, I grew up in, in a French-speaking province in Quebec province uh, near Montreal, and uh, my dad owned a restaurant, and basically uh, uh, we were going to, my, me and my two other brothers, there was uh, three of us, and uh, uh, we were uh, in Catholic school, and every day we would leave the school, and in midwinter uh, uh, we were walking towards the restaurant to see my dad, and uh, I got to 
traffic intersection and uh, a policeman was on the corner there uh, directing traffic and it caught my eyes and I stopped and basically my brother said to me, he says, uh, what's wrong, Pierre? And I said, uh, see that man there? And he goes, yeah, he's a policeman. I said, yeah. And I said, someday I'm going to be a policeman. And that was my, I thought the man was dressed, his stature was unbelievable. And, and the badge on his chest just made a, quite an impression that I never forgot. And that was the beginning of my uh, wanting to be a law enforcement officer, which I achieved. And uh, we moved from Canada. And uh, because my father had to be in a warm country because of health issue and he sold his restaurant and then we moved to Florida and uh, my father had a, a motel, several motels that he uh, had during before he passed away. And uh, I uh, was um, in high school getting uh, ready to graduate and I was in a program called uh, the diversified training program that was called DCT where you uh, went to school a half a day in your senior year and then and then the work uh, half a day in in, uh, in a toy store as a salesman and uh, I was uh, offered by the uh, head of the uh, program uh, a scholarship to go to University of Florida for free, and he had chosen me and uh, wanted to meet with my parents. And long story short is uh, we met, and he surprised me and told my parents that uh, they were offering me a free college degree. And uh, my dad said, well, Pete, you know, uh, it's your choice. What do you want to do? Are you going to do this or what? And I said, I'll be right back. And I went into uh, my uh, bedroom and hanging on the wall uh, on the mirror was my old uh, patrol, uh, school patrol officer's uh, lanyard. And I looked at it and I said, no, I want to be a poli uh, police officer and uh, I'm joining the army. Uh, and uh, that was during the Vietnam era. And uh, I turned down a free uh, scholarship, and I, my dad said, follow your dream. I'm supporting you, and you do what you feel you want to do. And uh, my brother was in the Air Force. He was an uh, uh, air police officer in the Air Force in Vietnam, and I had been talking with him, and he told me, he said, Pete, he says, you want to be a police officer? That's the way to go in, in the military. And I, you, it's exciting. And I said, that's what I want. And I enlisted and I was supposed to go to Vietnam to be an interpreter, French interpreter with the Montagnards. And uh, the next thing you know, when I graduate uh, military police school, uh, my orders were to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I said to my <laughs> sergeant, uh, something's wrong here. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, Pete, he says, Pete, I don't know what happened, but go to personnel right away and tell them that they made a mistake. Well, the, the man told me, he says, no, you're listed as DASA, which is Defense Atomic Support Agency. And he says, we can't change your order. It's a secret uh, base in Albuquerque, New Mexico. 
And uh, so I ended up in New Mexico being a military police officer. And uh, I, yeah, and I enjoyed it. It was uh, fascinating and uh, exciting. And, uh, and I was uh, learning a lot of techniques and uh, patrol. And uh, I got my feet wet and uh, eventually became, uh, they promoted me to uh, town patrol with the uh, city police uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I had an office there and uh, I was by myself working with uh, law enforcement officers. And I learned a heck of a lot from them and it became exciting. And uh, the adrenaline rush was unbelievable. And uh, I knew that this is what I wanted to do in my lifetime. From there, basically, uh, uh, I was approached by the provost marshal and uh, and my sergeant and lieutenant, and uh, they said, uh, Frenchy, uh, everybody called me Frenchy because of my French uh, background, and they said, uh, we would like for you to represent us and for the Military Police of the Year Award for the Third Army. And I was stunned, and they said, uh, we think uh, we're going to let you study everything for three months and then uh, you'll go before a panel and uh, we think you can you can be uh, represented and win this honor so i did and fortunately i was selected as Mil- military police officer of the year and quite an honor and uh, and my parents called me one, uh, once this came out and of course, the Military Times is a newspaper that all the military retirees uh, sign up for and all that. And my parents said, we got a call from Sh- Sheriff Allen B. Michelle uh, in, in uh, Broward County Sheriff's Department, and he wants you to call him immediately. So I called them, and uh, long story short, he says, basically, he says, Pete, uh, are you going to re-up? And I says, well, they're asking me to re-up, and I'm thinking about it. He says, well, I'm a retired provost marshal, and he said, I read the military time, and you were the military police officer of the year, and don't re-up. You're coming to work for me. And I was stunned. <laughs> and yeah. I, that was... I wanted to be a, a police officer, and that, that was the opportunity, and I took it. And um, I joined the uh, sheriff's office, and uh, in those days, believe it or not, Broward County, the uh, uh, line of uh, territory went from Miami-Dade County line and then West Palm Beach line, which was about a 35-mile uh, 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 wide uh, uh, area for us to patrol. There was only five of us on a ship. That was wow. <laughs> it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Now they've got now yeah. they got about uh, fifty five to seventy on a ship uh, working. So right. uh, I uh, started uh, with the sheriff's office, and my first assignment, uh, and that's uh, covered. All of these stories are covered in the book. Uh, my first assignment was to work at the south end uh, from Dade County all the way up to uh, Fort Lauderdale. One man patrol. You didn't have partners. Uh, you didn't. Uh, no one uh, took you out for a couple of weeks to show you the how to do it. They said, "Here's here's your gun. Here's your badge. Good luck, and, uh, and go and 
down to the south end, and you're working zone number one, four to twelve ship. So uh, I uh, went to the motor pool, and strangely enough, uh, while I was checking my vehicle to go to work for the first time, uh, there was a uh, undercover detective uh, vehicle, and a man got out, and he looked, uh, I mean, very six foot four and muscular, looked like a football player. And uh, he uh, motioned for me to come over, and he, he introduced himself. He says, I'm, I'm Lieutenant Stewart. And he said, uh, how old are you? And I said, uh, I'm 21. He says, you look like you're 18 years old, kid. And uh, I kind of laughed, and he said, uh, I need to talk to you for a minute. Can you come over here? Let's go around uh, from the uh, office here. And we went outside and to the backside, and... He said, uh, I'm in charge of the vice squad. And uh, he says, I want you to do something. And he says, uh, I'm swearing you to secrecy. And what I'm going to tell you, you're going to do. And uh, you're not to tell your supervisor or anyone. But I want you at 7 o'clock tonight to call in and say that you have a car problem. Your car's overheating. And you need to come in and change cars. And then you go, when you come in, go upstairs to the eighth floor, walk down the hall, and go to your the lieutenant's office right across from the dispatcher. And he said, tell the lieutenant that he's under arrest and that you have orders to take him downstairs to the booking desk. I was silent and my heart started beating and I says, am I being set up or what? <laughs> and, yeah, uh, sounded, sounded like it. You're, you're being inducted into the sheriff's department and this is going to be a good one, a joke on you. So right. he said, uh, don't ask any other questions. Go, go to work and at seven o'clock, tell him you've got car problems and I'll see you when you get off shift tonight at midnight. Well, uh, that stuck in my mind, and I rode around, and at 7 o'clock, I had, my stomach was turning upside down, and I called in, and I said, I need to change cars on my sergeant radio. Make it fast, Frenchie. I'll cover your zone. And I went to the department, walked upstairs, came down the hallway, and walked in, and the lieutenant was at his desk, and he looked up, and he goes, what are you doing here? You're supposed to get a car and get out of here. I said, Lieutenant, I don't know what to say, but um, I have orders to arrest you and take you down to the booking desk. And he jumped up and he goes, I told you to go back to work. And he put his hands on his gun and I drew down on him. And, and the dispatcher let out a scream because she could see what was going on. And she on the radio I could hear her saying, Sarge, Pete, he's got a gun pointed at the lieutenant. You need to come here quick. <laughs> and uh, I said, uh, I got orders from a lieutenant steward from Vice Squad to arrest you and take you down. His face went blank, white, flush white, and his head dropped. And I handcuffed him, took him down to the booking desk. And the booking sergeant looked at me and I said, Sarge, I don't know what's going on, but Lieutenant Stewart told me to bring this man and put him under arrest. And he kind of dropped his head. He goes, oh, crap. 
he says, go ahead, Frenchie, go back to work. We'll take care of this. And that was my first night on the job. So wow. it began my exciting, it began my exciting career. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. But, um, yeah, uh, but I I learned uh, a lot uh, when I was a patrol officer, and uh, a lot of the officers, uh, some of them, they come on the job and they feel like it's the paycheck. They don't really put effort into the work, uh, uh, especially nowadays, from what I'm seeing and all that, and uh, uh, they don't have... Uh, uh, we had in the old days, and I'm sure Larry, you, you're you're familiar with this. Is we used to try to do uh, public uh, relations uh, work, and yeah. my zone was strictly strictly a black zone uh, uh, of African Americans, and uh, I uh, had quite of a, uh, a connection with everybody in that zone and uh, the people living there. I used to stop in and have coffee with the the, the people and uh, chat with the uh, the uh, uh, parents and all that and and I and they knew uh, that you know hey this guy you know he is there for us and he's protecting us and uh, I had a good rapport and I think that's lacking nowadays. Uh, oh yeah, I think the I law enforcement. Yeah. And I, I think law enforcement uh, nowadays is, uh, you know, you go out there and uh, a lot of uh, officers act like, well, I'm a cop, you know, and what I say goes and that's it. And uh, they they do not uh, socialize with the community like they should. And to me, right. that was uh, part of my success, part of my success. And uh, I was shot at while I uh, one incident I recall uh, I had stopped a lady she she was uh, w- working at a motel uh, you know doing uh, uh, maid's work uh, for a, a motel and um, she ran a stop sign and I right in front of me and I blue lighted her and I, and I recognized her and I and I said Sally you just ran a stop sign. She goes, oh, Mr. Pete, I'm so sorry. God, uh, you know, I got a lot on my mind. I say, hey, don't worry about it. Don't worry. I'm not going to write you a ticket, but you got to be a little careful. And at that point, uh, two gunshots went off, bullets hitting the side of my car. And uh, across the street, uh, two guys were there, and they were shooting at me. And I told her, Sally, get out of here now. And she took off, and I... Immediately responded back with gunfire, etc. And they took off, and I took, took chase after them, and couldn't uh, couldn't find them. And I reported what was going on, and um, then I the dispatcher later on uh, said that uh, uh, Miss Sally wants you to go to our house. So I went to her house, and her husband was there, and he goes, uh, Mr. Pete. He says, thank you so much for protecting my wife and all that. And he said, uh, the word's out that two boys shot at Pete and we will find those guys for you and we'll turn them over to you. And uh, because of good relationship, I had the support of the community. And I think that's slacking today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, Pete, I know that you had a uh, really good career with for the sheriff's office and the military 
And uh, I want to get you into your uh, to your DEA career. Okay. Well, what what happened is uh, when, uh, I got promoted to detective eight months after I was on the job, and I was promoted to the vice squad where Lieutenant Stewart, <laughs> the one that had me arrest uh, my lieutenant, uh, brought me on board, and uh, I learned uh, all kinds of vice investigation, and I made a lot of cases, etc. And uh, for some reason, you know, the good Lord blessed me with a special trait that uh, I was able to work on the cover and I was proud of the work that I did and I made famous cases all over Broward County that had never been made before. And uh, then they transferred me over to narcotics because it, they only had two people working narcotics and one of them left to go with the state bureau and uh, the lieutenant assigned me to narcotics and I started making narcotics cases. And I was also working undercover, making numerous cases, uh, held hostage, threatened to be killed while I was working undercover, talked my way out of it. And I used to do some undercover work for the, what is now DEA, was the uh, uh, Federal Bureau of Narcotics, the original uh, agency uh, in Miami. They only had like six agents. And I did a lot of undercover work for them, and uh, I, I learned all about their agency and great friendship. And these guys, uh, I mean, they they didn't fear anything, and so I had a great relationship with them. Well, I was going to college at nighttime to get my degree, and uh, I got a message that they, uh, the director of FBN had called the school and said, get Mr. Chervet, tell him to come to Miami immediately. We need to have him come, and come to Miami immediately. So I left and basically blue-lighted my way to Miami real quick and walked in about 8 o'clock. Everybody had gone home, and he was there with his secretary, and his name was Ben Tyson. They used to call him the Batman, Italian-looking mobster like you wouldn't believe. He could be a movie star. He was unbelievable and admired by everybody. And he just looked at me, and he goes, Frenchie, sit down, keep your mouth shut, and get me Washington on the line, Betty. So Betty got to Washington on line, and I'm looking at Ben, and I'm trying, what is going on? And he goes, yes, I got him here. He will take the job, on the, but there's a condition. He will not uh, accept a grade five new entry level agent's position. He only will take a grade nine position if you want him that bad. And what it was is that uh, they had sent out a message that uh, find us a fluent French speaking detective or narcotic agent uh, we need him. We need one to be hired immediately and sent to France to work on the French connection undercover for the French police. And uh, next thing you know, I was hired on the spot, and um, I was uh, sent to uh, agent school in uh, 1972, and uh, was there for 12 weeks. And uh, I was the only one in the class that had narcotic experience and undercover. So with my colleagues there, I helped, you know, uh, them along the way and showed them, you know, how to do uh, uh, buys and all that. 
Long story short, uh, I was sent to France, and 90 days later, uh, I uh, ended up in Paris, and uh, I was basically told by uh, the director in Paris for the foreign offices uh, uh, that uh, Paul Knight uh, was his name, and uh, he was a CIA uh, background guy, and uh they said, uh, we do not have any agents here that can is fluent in French. They have State Department French. Uh, they've been to school at State Department, but they're not fluent. And you're the man, and uh, we need to solidify our position with the French police. There was a lot of corruption with the French police and the Corsican mob that were furnishing uh, heroin to the United States. And I became like the liaison, and basically, uh, I was at the French police uh, out of an eight-hour day. I was there at least six hours a, a day, and setting up various investigations through uh, various sources of mine, and working undercover, taking delivery of uh, heroin from the Corsican mob from Marseille, and they were known as the French Connection people vicious and dangerous and uh, i ended up taking numerous deliveries of uh, heroin uh, in paris my first case uh, was on the champs Elysees, and i took delivery of 15 kilos of opium raw, raw opium that was my first case and uh, when i gave the signal for them to move in uh, i took off running went inside the Claridge Hotel and went out the back door because I always uh, figured out where my escape route would be when the arrest time came down. And I took off, and the next thing you know, I'm running out of the back door, and I hear a French uniform <laughs> gendarme yelling, arrêtez, arrêtez, and we mean, stop, stop. And I said, oh, my God. And I put it into full speed at that point. I was 33 years of age, and I could outrun anybody. And I took off running. Well, he came after me, and next thing you know, two gunshots occurred. He was shooting at me. Thank God he didn't hit me. And I was able to escape and uh, dodge into a bar, a small uh, local bar. And I went in the bar and ordered a Calvados <laughs> and uh, to calm my nerves for being shot at. And uh, I could hear sirens and, uh, you know, people running around the neighborhood uh, trying to find this guy. And finally, after an hour and a half uh, and having a few uh, Calva, uh, I worked my way back to the French Narcotics Bureau and, and the deputy the, uh, ambassador was there. My director was there. The director of the Narcotics Bureau was there and the cops. And the director said, Monsieur Charette, I have to apologize. I said, Mr. Lemoyle, let me say this. From here on, I don't know what happened, but why was a cop shooting at me? He says, well, we couldn't tell them that you were working undercover for us. And we have a code of Napoleon code says that if we, if they work undercover, they can go to jail for five years. And mm. we don't tell anybody that you're doing the case for us. And I said, no, things are going to change. Trust me. I said, uh, we have to have better uh, communication because I almost died. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was my adventures. And I worked all over uh, France, Belgium, Germany. 
Amsterdam, uh, Spain, uh, you, you name it. I worked on that cover all over Europe and uh, made numerous cases uh, in Belgium. Uh, made they're all covered in uh, in my book. Uh, I, I would I could talk for the next three hours and uh, I just covered. Oh, I'm sure you cases. could. Well, let me ask you this. So even back in, in the day when you were working undercover in Europe, uh, I guess a lot of that, uh, of their law enforcement people in Europe uh, were not allowed to work undercover. Does that still apply today? Uh, yeah, that, uh, that still exists. Because uh, basically, well, in France, uh, the Napoleon Code of Law is very strict and police officers can't work undercover. So mm -hmm. uh, basically, uh, undercover work was kind of started, uh, uh, even our own agents, uh, they did some undercover work, but not not as many as they uh, they were able to because they were recognizing me almost immediately with the accent as a being an American, and that drew a, a red flag to to the mob. Sure. So um, I I posed as a Canadian mobster and spoke, of course, the Canadian uh, French versus the French French, and mm -hmm. um, so I was able and I had set up a cover. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, agents, uh, uh, Larry, and you know this. A lot of agents, uh, you know, will not discuss uh, that they're working cases and communicate with the local agencies, et cetera, because they just want to claim a fame. Uh, and, uh, you know, and this has been an ongoing issue for years with customs and FBI. I didn't believe in that. I came from the street. I had great relationships with the federal people, with the customs and all that. And I believed right. in cooperation. So because of my ability to do that and establish good liaison, I was able to function and they were uh, taking, uh, getting uh, claims for the cases that had been made. And uh, I, I, that was my specialty. And uh, I learned a lot, used new techniques. But one of the things that, uh, you know, unfortunately we don't have here in the States and I can understand you know, we have, uh, well, people have rights and uh, privacy, et cetera. The French government, uh, when I started working with them, uh, the corruption had existed. They fired a lot of cops, uh, et cetera. And finally, the director for that was there when I was there, Mr. Lemuel, he used to be with the anti-gang squad, the head of the robbery division. And uh, he had a reputation that was unbelievable. And he, and he was almost like a father to me. And uh, we worked so well, but uh, their success was uh, due to they were able to get wiretap uh, uh, immediately. Within five minutes, if you had a suspect, if I went to them and said, I got Joe Banana from New York. He's checked into the Claridge Hotel. We understand he's coming here. Within five minutes, they had his room, his phone under uh, wiretap, and they were monitoring everything, and they were feeding the information back to me and who, who he was calling, et cetera, and we would make the cases. That's one of the things that was uh, the success of the downfall of the French Connection. Wiretap was a big part of it, and uh, and I was able to, uh, you know, uh, we, we came up with new ideas and uh, new techniques and all that, and uh, so uh, it was dangerous. Uh, I had um, Corsican mobs uh, 
uh, in a town called Lille, where I uh, negotiated. Uh, this guy was a well-known uh, Corsican mobster providing heroin, and he had lost the shipment, and I was negotiating, ne- negotiating with him in a town called Lille for 20 kilos of heroin to buy to bring to Canada. And the French cops were doing prior surveillance uh, that morning. I showed up in town. I had my bodyguard, another agent, uh, working with me, who was my bodyguard. And uh, uh, next thing you know, I happened to notice during our discussion with this guy, and I, I didn't like the way things were going with the conversation. I noticed out of the corner of my eye a, a French police officer, and he's giving me a signal, putting his hand and like cut it, cut his throat, like cut it off, cut it off. That was the signal, you know, call it off. And sure. I figured something's up. And uh, I told the guy, uh, I'm going to be back in Paris, and you're going to meet me in Paris, but I don't like where you, the way you want your conditions and all that. So. Long story short, uh, when I got back with the cops in Paris, uh, Mr. Lemuel told me, he said, Pierre, it's a good thing you saw Jean-Marie doing the cut signal because these guys, we had followed them to a cemetery and they had two graves dug up and they were going to bury you and Kevin in those graves after they got the money. And uh, so... uh, it was dangerous, and uh, I worked all over uh, Amsterdam uh, quite a bit. What was one of my places that I had to work in and made numerous cases in Amsterdam, uh, one of the largest hashish uh, seizure in the world, 12,000 12, pounds of uh, hashish on the docks of Amsterdam delivered to us. And uh, and uh, But uh, I uh, was able to also, uh, one of the fascinating cases, was uh, uh, I, I, I was snuck, snuck in into Belgrade uh, uh, undercover, posing as a Canadian uh, salesman. And uh, I, I made the case, started it in Paris. The bosses didn't believe, no way. Uh, this gentleman that you're meeting with, uh, you know, he just wants to get back to his hometown because he has asked for money up front for his trip to go get a kilo of, of a heroin allegedly being made and fabricated in uh, Yugoslavia. And everybody said that we keep hearing this, but Pete, it's not, it's not happening. This guy's going to take you for the ride. And I said, look, here's the story, Nick. And that was my boss, a deputy director. I said, Nick, uh, I'll tell you what. I'm going to give him $5,000. You give me the 5000 And if he doesn't come back, I'll reimburse you with the 5000 But I got it. My gut feeling tells me this is for real, and he's going to come back. And I had told this old man, look, you, uh, this is for real, and we don't play games. I'm from Canada, and let me show you some. And I, uh, I did my homework. I took uh, a French police officer friend. We took a picture of his wife, his grandkids, his, his mother, and uh, his grandmother. And I threw them on the table, and I said, see these people? And his eyes bulge out. And I said, now, if you don't come back, they, they will be dead. Now, you say this is for real? Bring me back a sample. I don't want a, a gram, because anybody can buy a gram. I want a kilo. And you bring it back. And then you take the train and you send me a wire that where you're stopping every every time when the train stops, you send me so I can track your, your travel. 
He did. He came back, and on a Saturday morning, he threw a kilo of heroin <laughs> at a little cafe on the table. I grabbed it immediately and uh, went into the bathroom, checked it out, and I called my boss, and I said, guess what? Uh, we have heroin from Belgrade. And everybody went crazy. It was 88% pure. And wow. I went into Bel Belgrade for 12 days, worked on their cover. We had 15 kilograms of he uh, heroin delivered to us. And uh, that was the first case ever made in a black country. And we exposed that there was heroin being fabricated in a black country. So that was a total success. But um, that's that's what I did. And uh, I survived, and uh, for five years, uh, I was promoted to uh, open up the new office uh, and became the head of the office in, uh, uh, on the French Riviera in Nice, and I was there for two years and made cases for the French uh, cops there and all that, and uh, left and to come back here in the States in 1977 to be agent in charge of Columbia, South Carolina. Pete, let me back you up uh, while you're was serving in, in, in France. So the, the French at that time were the main source of heroin that came into the United States. And was that, was that through the uh, uh, Sicilians through Sicily and then into New York? How did that operation work? No, they're uh, the, uh, the, Heroin was going rampant in the United States, and uh, President Nixon uh, declared the war on, on uh, uh, heroin. And uh, so uh, uh, the main supplier for heroin and the main source of heroin for the United States uh, was the, uh, the Marseille Corsican mob. And uh, the labs were in Marseille in, in small villas. And they would manufacture uh, 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 the heroin and then transport it uh, back to the States uh, through various means. Uh, uh, the, um, one of the biggest uh, seizure of heroin made uh, in Marseille was on a boat. It was called the Caprice du Tar. And uh, the agents there with customs and all that got word that uh, possibly this boat had been to the States on several occasions and mm -hmm. maybe transporting heroin. And uh, they uh, searched the boat. It was getting ready to leave. And they got the biggest heroin seizure ever made in the history of France. It had uh, something like, I believe it was 750 kilograms of heroin. Oh. And uh, so, but all the labs uh, were in France. The, the French had a reputation to make the best heroin uh, in the world. Uh, their purity of, of heroin, uh, I, there was a, a, a chemist, and he had 99.8% heroin. Wow. Uh, and he made the, the best heroin ever made. And uh, so... Uh, uh, the labs were in in Marseille, and uh, basically the morphine base to make the production of heroin came from Turkey by boat, uh, dropped off the coast of uh, Marseille with buoys and all that into the water, 
and then by the tractor trailer crossing the various borders and that it would bring more fiends from Germany, et cetera. So uh, that was the focal point. Uh, you know, the other producers of heroin was, of course, uh, the uh, heroin coming out of Thailand. And that was a uh, total uh, purity was probably in the, around 60 to 70 percent. But it was not this, uh, the great quality that uh, uh, the mm-hmm. French uh, mob made. And uh, so uh, our job was to break up the French connection. The head of uh, the French connection was a gentleman by the name of Jean Jean. And that's the one you see in the uh, uh, movie, The French Connection, when he gets on the train and he waves bye-bye to uh, uh, Popeye Doyle. And, right. uh, and uh, he... He leaves the country, and my when I got on the Riviera, my, I had uh, I had said I will capture the French connection. I will find that SOB, <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, uh, my uh, information uh, he was somewhere around the uh, uh, coast, but uh, we could never. And I carried a picture on uh, my visor of uh, my car. And when I left, I told the new agent that came in in charge, I, uh, I said, Eddie, here's a picture of Jean Jean. He's somewhere around here, and I want you to find that sucker because I've been looking for him and I can't get, I couldn't get close to finding him. Well, about six months later, when I was in Columbia, South Carolina, Eddie called me and he says, Guess what? I got him. And he saw him sitting at a cafe followed him with the French cops to an apartment, then they followed him to the Italian Riviera to a castle, and there was four towers there, and they had four labs working on each towers, and then they saw people going to a, a, a ship, a cargo ship, uh, off the coast of Italy, and the, bring the heroin to the cargo, and they arrested Jay on all that. And he, uh, from what I got uh, several years ago, he passed away. He was like 91. And uh, I covered that story in the book and all that. So uh, it's uh, the French were the best in the world for heroin. But now the uh, Corsican mob and everything uh, from the people that we arrested and uh, cases uh, that I made, uh, we were able to finally bring him down. And one of the Biggest cases uh, that I made it was 20 kilos of heroin in Paris, and uh, it was uh, a gentleman by the name of Salvatore Lamana, and that's in the book. And Lamana uh, basically uh, was going to ship uh, 20 kilos of heroin, French heroin from Marseille, to to go to Canada first, and then go to New York, and. We had about six major figure of the French Connection Corsican mobsters involved in that case. We arrested Lamana and his group and these uh, famous uh, 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 Corsican mobsters. And uh, uh, during during the uh, investigation, uh, Lamana kept referring to Herbie. And he talked to the, on the phone to uh, his associate and say, I heard from Herbie, Herbie. And uh, the director, uh, Mr. Lemuel, said to me, he said, Pierre, he says, uh, we keep hearing this name, Herbie. And he's getting phone calls and uh, back to New York. 
uh, from New York at uh, different locations. And can you find out from your New York office if the name Herbie means anything to them? Well, Larry, as you well know, sometimes you have overzealous agents who don't want to share information because they want to make the case. They don't even cooperate with their own agents. And it occurred to me, and I got, I sent messages to New York, uh, to the international group. I need to identify a guy by the name of Herbie. Have you guys ever heard of a Herbie? He's supposed to be the recipient of this heroin. No, Pete, we don't know. Name doesn't ring a bell. Unfortunately, later, after we took down the shipment, later New York asked Mr. Lamuel to bring the 20 kilos, and they had arrested, and the Herbie was Herbert Sperling, the biggest heroin mobster in New York. And Herbie Sperling, if you Google him, you'll see uh, he was nasty and involved, and he was considered the top dealer of heroin in New York for the mob. And our own agents told us, no, we don't know him, because they wanted to have that seizure made in New York to make a name for themselves. Well, guess what? We embarrassed them, but uh, it, they withheld information, and unfortunately, that occurs. <laughs> so now that we we're moving you from France and then you, you were in charge in France and then you, then you come to the United States. Right. Uh, I was, uh, appointed, uh, as, uh, uh, agent, resident agent in charge of the Columbia, uh, DEA office and, uh, which changed a lot of, uh, part of the, uh, assignments. Peter Bensinger was the director in those days, and I admired him, great director, and uh, consider him a friend. And when I left, I was with him uh, uh, in uh, at the UN in uh, in Geneva. Uh, he was giving a speech, and uh, he asked to speak with me, and he says, Pete, you're going back, blah, blah, blah. And you did a hell of a job for us, and uh, I, I don't know how to thank you for what you've done and all that. And he says, uh, I'm going to uh, assign you back to uh, where your parents are and your brothers to the Miami office. And I looked at him and I said, boss, I got you know me. I, said, I tell him like it is. He said, oh, that's for sure, Pete. And I said, look, let me just say something. First of all, I hate Florida. <laughs> My parents are there. I don't want to go to Florida. And I said, I think there's uh, something you need to know. And I said, you are returning uh, agents back to their either home state after they finish a five-year tour of duty. And here they were country attaches like myself. And we dealt with the highest people in Europe, presidents, prince, uh, all kinds of uh, 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 Minister of Justice, etc., and we do liaison. And uh, then we're told you're going to go back as a street agent again. And I said, something's wrong with this program. I said, you know, uh, we are the representative. And I said, I'm not speaking for myself, but I'm speaking for all the country attache here. I said, you know, we're proud, and we go back and we do the job. That will never change. But I said, you know, you would think that if we were that capable of deal, dealing with, you know, heads of countries and all that face to face, 
you know, we know what we're doing, and now you want us to start all over as street agents. And he goes, Peter, I, no one has ever told me this, but he said, I didn't realize uh, that that was going on, and I didn't look at it that way. And he says, I'll be back in touch with you. And he left. Within a week, I got a call from head of personnel, and he called me an SOB on the phone, et cetera. How dare you talk to the director? Now we got to find a place for you to, uh, that he uh, wants us to find a, a slot that we have where we had the need for a new agent in charge. And I said, look, first of all, I said, the director and I had a conversation, but I said, let me tell you something. I don't like your tone of voice, so you have a good day. And I hung up on him. Well, he took issue, and next thing you know, I was called by the, my director and said, did you just hang up on him? I said, I sure did. He called me an SOB, and I said, and I hung up on him. He said, well, I'll call Bensinger because he wants a uh, reason why you threatened him and called him an SOB. So long story short, the director made him apologize to me, and he changed the policy that any agent in charge of foreign offices would never go back on the street once they left the post in, in good uh, standing and that they were to be assigned as resident agent in charge. So that changed the policy for all of my colleagues and all that. And so we made some headways internally uh, with, with those issues. And when I got to South Carolina, there was just two uh, uh, resident agent in charge and one agent. South Carolina, uh, I'm not to be labored the whole thing here because I know you want to hear about Southern Comfort. When I got there, they had one case on the book and, uh, and one agent. The previous agent in charge told this agent, I don't want big cases made because big cases cause big problems. Little cases, no problem. And he, this agent was restricted from uh, doing what he was supposed to do. And I uh, came and I told him, uh, this is going to change. I will work undercover, which they, he said, Pete, you can't work undercover. He says, resident agent in charge, don't work undercover. I said, Norm, I just told you, I will work undercover because you are well known. We only a two-man office. And I said, also, I'm going to form an informal uh, uh task force here with all the local cops and the state bureau and all that we did and uh, and for four and a half years we became the number one office making cases uh in the united states and uh, i had us 11 people working in an ad hoc non-paid position from my office and we made some of the biggest we arrested sheriffs biggest shipments of uh, uh, marijuana coming into the state uh, arrested the chairman of the Democratic Party for uh, a conspiracy bringing in the drugs into the state and I advised the US attorney of his rights and uh, was working for the Attorney General because he was corrupt he died uh, two months later after we made this case and had a heart attack. And uh, then there was contracts that had my wife, me and my children killed by state senators. And uh, next thing you know, I got a phone call and uh, I can't really say too much about it, but uh, the drug czar for Reagan was uh, Dr. Carlton Turner, good friend of mine still is. 
and uh, Carlton called me and said uh, there's problems in the Atlanta office, and uh, the man asked me to see who could be sent there to put the office back in shape because there's a lot of partying going on and all that. And uh, that's when I had the contract on my life. So I said, Carlton, tell the man that uh, I'm at his service and this conversation never existed. And I got transferred to Atlanta. And in Atlanta, made a lot of cases, arrested sheriffs and the corrupt cops and all that with the new group. We straightened out the office. The parties were not as uh, numerous as they used to be. And uh, we made a lot of cases, but the biggest case, which was the biggest conspiracy in the history of the United States, cocaine conspiracy, uh, one and a half year of investigation. We started with four people on the case, and I had one undercover agent working with the mob out of Fort Lauderdale uh, to uh, to uh, Charles, uh, Charles Bonadonna, and and uh, he uh, was bringing and importing heroin, I mean cocaine from uh, Medellin from Pablo Escobar, and uh, the mob had a uh, broker working in Medellin that was wanted, a gentleman by the name of Harold Rosenthal who had escaped from federal prison. And we became the transporter for the U.S. mob for their uh, cocaine. And Pablo Escobar and Harold Rosenthal, uh, we had undercover pilots. They flew in, picked up the cocaine. uh, uh, First, uh, we brought in uh, five shipments of cocaine for the mob, totaling over 4,000 pounds of cocaine. Kept it going for uh, a year and a half. And when the indictment came out, we had 52 defendants. And Rosenthal was uh, living in Medellin and reported to Pablo every day at his uh, office. And I went down there, uh, uh, told the director, uh, Rosenthal is mine. And I, I lost a year and a half. And I'm going to set up, and the Colombians had agreed to finally give them to us. And we uh, removed him from Medellin after 12 days of of, uh, planning his uh, capture. (laughs) And uh, we brought him back to the States, and the entire thing was uh, close to uh, almost 50 tons of cocaine. And uh, we ended up... uh, using new techniques, new surveillance techniques. Uh, uh, that's all going to be discussed in this up in my next book that's coming out. And also, uh, I, I'm getting some uh, requests and being interviewed uh, for making a movie out of Southern Comfort. And um, <clears throat> President Reagan and the Attorney General of the United States have proclaimed this case as the biggest cocaine case uh, conspiracy in the history of the United States. And Ross Perot uh, asked for me and my boss in Atlanta and the agents that worked undercover on it. It was five of us uh, to come to Texas, and he honored us at a sit-down dinner and presented us with the award, uh, uh, each with a cold combat masterpiece, 45, all engraved from Ross Perot, and the serial numbers go from one to five. (laughs) 
That's awesome, Pete. That's awesome. Uh, it was uh, it was uh, one of the most interesting case, and uh, I've received I've, well, I've done five interviews right now for uh, productions, uh, possible production of TV series and a movie with Southern Comfort. So it's going to show you know what the life of an undercover agent is all about, what cooperation and Pete read just didn't become fam famous or uh, got accolades. It was a team effort, and that's where a lot of agents forget. Uh, it's not all about me, me, me. It is a team effort, and I all my career was team effort, and I thank God that I had such great colleagues and great law enforcement officers throughout the world that helped me along the way, and uh, my rise to fame as people call it i don't call it that i was just doing my job was done because we we did it together and uh, too many times uh credit does not go uh given to the agents that were in the background but i give sure. credit to all of them because they they covered me and they protected me and it was a great team effort well that's what it's all about uh it certainly is a team effort so, Pete, tell us a little bit about your book. Uh, yeah, my book is called One Hell of a Ride, uh, The Investigative and Uncover Life of a DEA Agent. And uh, the book uh, is a biography of what I've been speaking to you about of my entire career from beginning as a kid into law enforcement and cases that I made uh, uh, for eight years with the sheriff's office. And uh, I had great people that backed me. I was in dangerous uh, situation, uh, guys holding guns to my head saying, you're the man and all that. And and I was able to talk my way out of it. And, um, uh, and uh, I give credit where it's due to everybody that worked it. And uh, we worked together as a team. And it covers uh, my work uh, in uh, Florida, um, I worked all over Europe behind the Arctic Curtain, and then I leave the French Riviera, and I am working on book number two, One Hell of a Ride number two, which starts in South Carolina, and there's, gonna, there's about uh, 15 different cases that were unbelievable, largest seizures of, uh, we made the largest seizure of uh, marijuana ever uh, brought into mm -hmm. the state of South Carolina, and uh, had you know my life threatened and all that, but uh, uh, that office now I think there's nine agents working there now, and uh, we cleared a lot of corruption with the assistance of the state the state bureau and all that, and we worked together as, as one one unit, not just an agency. And uh, then I got transferred to Atlanta, and Atlanta we made numerous cases there also putting sheriff in prison and you name it, we did it. And uh, uh, then I went to headquarters, uh, served my time in hell. <laughs> and yeah. basically, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know, Larry, if you did too also, I think you did, right? <laughs> well, I worked in the Washington field office. That was close enough. That was close enough. <laughs> where, where, can we, uh, where can we buy your, your book at? My book, uh, you can either buy directly from me if you want an autograph uh, a copy. And uh, uh, my uh, 
if you go online, uh, I got a Facebook uh, author's page uh, under Pierre Charette. And then uh, the book is uh, published by Amazon Kindle. And uh, uh, right now, uh, there, that's where you can order the book from Amazon or directly from me. And uh, my uh, email, if you want to order from me, my email is Pellagey, P-E-L-L-I-J-A-Y, at AOL.com. And you can uh, communicate with me and uh, get a signed copy and all that. It sells for uh, $14.99. And uh, book number two, ride number two, is going to even be more exciting than this one. And... I'm working on it as as we speak, and hopefully I'll have it out in a couple of months. And our fingers crossed that there might be uh, uh, movie ep- uh, TV episodes coming up and uh, a possible movie of Southern Comfort. Uh, it'll make the French Connection movie look, look sick. Uh, uh, the Southern Comfort was one of the most amazing cases I've ever worked in my entire career. Well, Pete, listen, I... Really appreciate you taking your time to come on our show. Um, I know uh, uh, I'm looking forward to getting your book. I'm definitely going to get a book from you because I'd love to read it. And uh, I hope everyone else will too. And uh, a a great career with DEA. And again, Pete, thank you for coming on. Uh, Larry, it's my honor. And I thank you for asking me to be on your show. And thank you so much. And I appreciate it. And Alan, I thank you for helping me. And I look forward to meeting you guys at some point here. Thanks, Pete. Forletta Investigates. Thank you for listening to Forletta Investigates. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could follow Forletta Investigative Security Consultants on LinkedIn and at FCIS LLC on Facebook. And if you are in need of investigative or security services, please go to fcisllc.com.